So if you'd like to open your Bibles at Psalm 44. (coughs) When I was planning this series, um, I had a a variety of objectives in mind. I wanted to um, take one psalm from each of the books, of the, the five books of the psalms. I wanted to take one from each of the main authors, and of course the sons of Korah are one of the main groups of authors of the, of the psalms. I wanted to take one of um, different kinds of psalms, even if we don't entirely know what the difference between a miktam and a maskil is, but uh, you know, to, nevertheless maybe to take one or two examples of that. And I also thought it would be good perhaps to look at some of the less well-known psalms, and I think this one qualifies in all those <laughs> respects. And you can understand why, because in many ways it isn't easy. Let's go to the first slide. There are actually 13 maskils in the Psalms. Some of them attributed to David, some to Asaph, and some like this one to the sons of Korah. Just remind you that the um, sons of Korah assumed to be one of the two temple music schools like, the, uh, like Asaph. And um, so it's not a particular author or particular person, but probably a group of people who were charged with care of the music in the the temple worship. And it's called a maskil, and unlike miktam, which we thought about last week, whose origin is obscure, the word maskil, on the other hand, has the disadvantage of having rather too many possible meanings. The, the root meaning is that it, to be make a wise or prudent, it can also mean to have success or skill. So does it refer to some kind of teaching psalm? According to Derek Kidner's commentary, one of the more extreme interpretations that it means it's a psalm with difficult music, only for the expert musician. Well, that could be true, I suppose. <laughs> Seems a bit like that sometimes, but... Uh, probably makes more sense to say that it is a psalm designed to make one wise or prudent, although not all the psalms that are described as maskils are obviously teaching psalms, and indeed, in a sense, this one isn't either. But maybe it's, it's a psalm that you're supposed to think about, like the, the sayings, the riddles and sayings of the wise that it talks about in Proverbs that you need to think about and, and uh, think it through for yourself to achieve understanding. Anyway, what's this psalm about? The first question is what historical period or event does it refer to? One might immediately think it refers to the um, exile, time of exile of the Jewish people, but in fact there are arguments against that. First of all, it's included in the first two books of the psalms, um, and as Derek Kidner points out, most of the uh, psalms in the first two books are of earlier origin. Uh, an even stronger argument for an early uh, time authorship of it is that um, the claim at the end that we have not rejected your covenant. Now, the prophets were pretty well unanimous in that the exile was caused by the fact that the people of God had rejected the covenant. And so this would be sticking out like a sore thumb if it was actually referring to the exile. 
So it seems much more likely that it actually refers to some time of discouragement and indeed defeat earlier on in, in history. I mean, there are various such events recorded, like, for instance, the death of Josiah. Josiah was said to be the best of the kings, the most faithful of the kings of, um, Israel, of Judah, and yet he died in a rather pointless battle. So it could refer to that event or some other earlier defeat. Um, but we're not entirely sure which one. But I think it's probably pre-exile and clearly does refer to some time of discouragement and defeat among the people of God. This particular psalm is not as familiar as some of them. Um, although that one verse about being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered or devoured might sound familiar, and that's of course because Paul quotes it in Romans 8. And we will come back and look at what Paul has to say about this psalm towards the end. But let's look at the psalm itself first. One thing that it's clear is that it's written by somebody with a considerable flair for the dramatic and there are several kind of, of tricks, I suppose you'd call them tricks, or ways of making it more dramatic. You might notice, for instance, that it's mostly written in the first person plural, we, our, us. But at times of particular emotional intensity, he switches to the first person, I, me, my. And I think he does that cleverly to, to sort of enhance the emotional impact of it. And, of course, the literary structure is clearly set out in one sense to shock us, to cause us to think, you know, it doesn't go where we expect he's going to go. It fairly obviously divides into these three sections. There's a victory song at the beginning, and then a lamentation of defeat, and then there's that, this plea at the end for vindication and restoration. Um, the end of verse 8 is that instruction selah, which again, nobody is quite sure what it means, but it probably means pause, probably means a dramatic pause, um, but it was hardly necessary at that point, is it? There's a complete change of gear, as it were, at that point. And we wonder how the psalm got written, decided when I started to read it. Was the first part of the psalm written before a battle? And then the rest had to be written, rewritten or edited afterwards, perhaps? Was it even two separate psalms? Was there an early part and then when things seemed to be less encouraging, somebody wrote a second half to it? That's perhaps possible. I think it's more likely, however, that it was all written together. It's, you know, as I say, the sense of drama that it has suggests that it was written as a single piece. And just imagine... Just put yourself in the position of the congregation who were hearing this or singing it for the same time, for the first time, sorry, I meant for the first time. Presumably, they were hearing and singing it at a time of some actual defeat and disaster. And, you know, so they'd all turned up at the, the temple and the sons of Korah had come out to lead the worship and they sing this hymn of praise and victory at the beginning. And the people must have been sort of sitting there and thinking, have they lost contact with reality? 
What, what are they doing? Just put yourselves in the position of those people who first would have heard the psalm sung or, or first learned it and sung it. They would think, wouldn't they, that, as I say, that the psalmist had somehow lost contact with reality. But no, the psalmist knows what he's doing and where he's going. And um, he rides this uh, emotional roller coaster, as you might put it, with some skill, in fact. So let's look at the three sections of the psalm. <coughs> In the first, verse, uh, first eight verses form a song of victory. The structure is that quite common structure that we find in um, Hebrew literature. It's known as, if you want the technical term, it's called a chiasm. Um, but it's this sandwich, this sort of in-out structure, where the last part mirrors the first part, and in the middle um, is the most important, the focus of the, the whole structure. This is a, a fairly straightforward chiasm. But it's cleverly done because there is a change of tense in the middle. The first half of the sandwich, as it were, is what happened in the past. And then the second half of the sandwich says, now, me, I, us. Let's just look at what it actually says. Just look at the verses as I read out the summary. So in verse 1, he starts by saying, our fathers told us of God's deeds. In verse 2, he remembers their victories. In, verses, um, in verse 3, he reports, as it were, on the victories of the past. He was probably thinking of, of Joshua, perhaps. And um, how they were won, not by their military skill or the sophistication of their weaponry, but rather how these battles were won by God himself. And then in the middle, he has this great cry, God gives the victory. Verses 3b and really through to 4 and 5. And then the psalmist unwinds it again. He says it's God, not our military skill, that gives us the victory. But now it's, he's put it in the present tense. It's not our skill who gives the victory. And he does declare some victory in verse 7, although one wonders quite what victory he's talking about. But he does say that God has given us the victory now, in the present tense. And so in verse 8, he recounts God's victories and glory now. And we might have expected him to stop there. And at the centre of the sandwich, as it were, is this glorious declaration that it's the sovereign Lord who decrees a victory for God's people. Dramatic pause, because the people are thinking, hang on a minute though, this is not where we are. We've just faced a disaster. What are, we, what are we to make of this? And so we have this, as we might say, the big but. And he suddenly switches from this song of victory to a lamentation. He abandons the chiastic structure here. Instead, it's, it's a downward staircase, almost as he steps down through um, the sort of stages of emotional uh, discouragement. But I want you to notice a few things about this. 
This is not a cause of despair. And most importantly, neither is it an abandonment of, of faith or an abandonment of belief in God's power and God's, um, that it is God who gives the victory. In fact, quite the opposite. If you notice, he says, you have all the way through. In each step, he says, you have done this, referring, of course, to God. Nowhere does the author abandon his confidence in God's sovereignty. In fact, in some ways, he, you can say he follows the idea of the first section to its logical conclusion. If it is God who decrees victories for Jacob, it must also be, in this case, God who has declared, de decreed defeat for God's people. That's the logic of it. And so it's not as if he's saying the words of verses 1 to 8 are, are untrue. He's not saying, you know, this is all fairy, fairy tales, it's all stuff in the past, but it doesn't, it's not, doesn't happen in the real world. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that these things clearly are true. And we, uh, history shows us that. We do know the victories that God declared for his people. It is true, but it isn't the whole truth. And that's the point I think the psalmist is trying to make here. And if you look at what he's saying here, you could say it's not the power or even the sovereignty of God that's being called into question here. It's rather his adherence to the covenant. Um, you notice that later on, of course, he appeals to the covenant relationship between God and his people. So it might be just worth reminding ourselves of what it was that God had actually promised in this covenant. And um, it's, it appears a few times in, 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 um, in the Pentateuch, and particularly in Deuteronomy, for instance. I'll read it out, um, but basically I put it on the board there, on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 12 and 13, and says the following. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I haven't read all of it but of course the people's requirement as we see in Psalm 44, verse 20, was that they should serve no foreign God. And God's half of the covenant was his claim that he would be their God. If they serve no foreign God, he would be their God. It doesn't actually say anything about endless victories. In fact, it didn't promise them a lack of struggle. They were told that they would have to go on and possess the land, and that would be a time of struggle and conflict. And indeed the psalmist does claim here that the nation has not turned to any foreign God. They've kept to the path of following the Lord. And I think we need to be careful not to explain away this point. You do find interpreters doing that sometimes. They more or less dismiss verse 17, which says it's not as if we've turned away from the path. They say, oh, well, the people must have sinned. Well, yeah, of course they had. <laughs> but that's not the point. 
The covenant didn't require the people to be sinless. The covenant required that they would serve no foreign God. But what was it that God had actually promised? Was it exemption from struggle and conflict and setbacks? No, it wasn't that at all. What God had promised is that they would be his people and he would be their God. And sometimes we think of God like a kind of vending machine, don't we, where you put in the right coins and you press the right buttons and your right snack comes out. But uh, it just doesn't work like that. God's covenant doesn't work like that. And I think also we shouldn't reject the nation's claim to have kept the covenant and neither should we re- but neither should we reject the reality of the suffering described. That's the other thing that people do sometimes, isn't it? Say that, well, suffering's not really real. It's a whole religion based on that and Christian science claims that there's no such thing as suffering. But this is real suffering. It's real pain. There's real shame here. We could say it's real disillusion, if you use that in the literal sense of the, of the term, of you know, something they thought was true actually being found not to be true. So, so let's just have a look at this staircase, downward staircase, as it were. And the word that's translated rejection is more, more literally means pushed aside. Pushed aside as if God was no longer interested. As if he's no longer sort of, that's not, you know, I haven't got time for that now, I'm not interested in that anymore. I did that in the past, but, but that's not where I'm at now. That seems to be the meaning of the term rejected. And the psalmist suffers not so much a failure of belief as a failure to understand why God would want to do such a thing. And so the triumphant note of the first section is actually unpicked, piece by piece. You can just compare it. Verse 3b talked about love, God's love for his people. Verse 9 says we have rejection and humbling. Verse 4 said that God decrees victories for Jacob. But this is a song about a defeat. Verses 2b and verse 5 talked about Israel crushing her enemies. But in verse 11, it's God's people who are crushed and scattered. And in verse 3b, we see the people described as God's prized possession, the one that God loved. And now in verse 12, we see them sold off as worthless junk. It's a great picture really, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's like disposing of an old car. You know, I'll take whatever you'll give me for it. <laughs> That's what he says, isn't it? Didn't even bother to negotiate a decent price. I just wanted it off my hands. That seems to be what he's saying here. And then it gets really personal, doesn't it? Instead of boasting and praise in verse 8, and instead of, remember from Psalm 2, where it says the Lord holds the nations in scorn and they plot against him, 
In this case, it seems to be the nations who have the last laugh. In verse 13 and 14. What is it that the nations are saying? So it must be something like, clearly their God has abandoned them. Or more likely he was never there at all. That must be what the nations are saying. And he switches in verses 15 and 16, doesn't he, to the first person again. Instead of we, it's I. And his life, he's suggesting, is frankly not worth living. It almost seems as if he's given up any hope of relief. All he can see, really, is the enemy who's bent on revenge. And I think we must, as I say, give credence to this. If we don't discount the claim of verse 17, that they had not abandoned the covenant, we shouldn't discount that this is real suffering, real pain, real confusion. And suffering is real. And if we only had verses 1 to 8 without the, the rest of the psalm, in a sense it would be living in a, a fantasy world. Because it doesn't always seem to go so well. But this is pretty terrible, isn't it? One feels one must surely conclude that people must have done something particularly bad to merit this retribution. But the psalmist, as he thinks about this, is trying to come to terms with this defeat that the people have obviously suffered. He rejects that obvious conclusion. And again, Notice what he says. He appeals to God that the people do have a clear conscience that they had not abandoned him. And yet, he says, they're struggling in the dark. Verse 19. And look at what he says in verse 22. He says, for your sake, we face death all day long. It's not that they're facing death all day long because they've rejected God and sought some other God. It is because they have kept to the service of the Lord that we, they face death all day long. They're suffering as the Lord's people. And this is the basis of the appeal at the end in verse 23 and 26. They cannot understand why God seems to have pushed them away. And they know the Lord is not a fickle and a capricious God. And so their cry for help is based on his unfailing love in verse 26. And as I say, the, the word there is that word hesed. It's one of Phil's, if you listen to Phil preaching, you know it's one of Phil's favorite words. Hesed, steadfast love, covenant love. The love that God shows for his people. And so the psalmist doesn't know where to go for help and will not abandon his faith in God. And yet, in one sense, the underlying question remains unanswered, doesn't it? Why does God do this? Why, have you putting it, why are you putting us through this, Lord? And we can ask the same question, can't we? As I hinted in my prayer earlier, why was the gospel preached in society changing power in the 18th century 
and then it became kind of institutionalized in the 19th century and went into decline. So that in the 20th century, God's people are indeed regarded with scorn and derision. And you've got to turn on the TV to see that. And as I say, at least here it's limited to words. As David was saying earlier this morning to the children. But words do hurt. In other places, of course, it's not just sticks and stones, but swords and tanks and, and AK-47s. Why does God allow this? Why does God give these times when it seems God's people are defeated and struggling? Why is there individual suffering in the lives of the faithful believers? That was one of the questions that Chris was asking this morning, didn't it? If, I, if only somebody could stand up here and uh, give us an answer to that question. <laughs> but actually, I would suggest to you the Bible never does answer this question directly. And um, just think, I, I, can't, I say just think of the book of Job. You may or may not be familiar with the book of Job. But the book of Job is all about this question. Job suffers apparently unjustly. And um, some not very helpful friends come along and say, oh, you must have done, you know, God is not unjust. You must have done something really bad to deserve this suffering. And that's a summary of it. There's about 38 chapters of this. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Um, but at the end, Job says, well, I want to stand before God. I want to, him to answer me, not these rather unhelpful counsellors. And uh, indeed, in the end, God does answer Job, but it's not quite perhaps the answer that he wanted. The Lord said to Job, this is, this is Job 40, verses 1 to 8. I don't think I put it on the slide. Oh, I've just put the, um, I've put the text up there. Job 40, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Job... Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? I'll stop there because there's a lot more of this, but that's the answer that Job gets. Would you discredit my justice? Would you claim that the Lord is unjust in order to justify yourself? And yet we know, as in Job's case, that suffering is not always a direct result of sin. It is true, of course, that suffering is an indirect result of sin. But Jesus himself gives us an example, doesn't he, of one of those nasty accidents that human cities and people are prone to. This is Luke 13, 4 and 5. He says, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, 
Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. It's not that they were particularly sinful and so God not to tower over on them. That's not the right way to look at it. That yes, there is suffering in the world because of sin. But sometimes it is, in a sense, unfair that he dealt out to people. If God's blessings don't pop out like a vending machine, then his judgments don't either. And so the climax of this psalm is in verses 23 to 26. Will the Lord hide his face forever? Does his covenant love mean nothing? Does the nation's suffering mean nothing? And again, we're not given the answer here. But in fact, as I say, the Bible never gives us, in a sense, a straight answer to that question. Instead, it gives us a person. It gives us a king who would lead them to victory. They had to wait hundreds of years for it, for their answer to their prayer. And things got a lot worse, in fact, before they got better. But God did send his king, but even then it wasn't at all the kind of king or the kind of victory they expected. Just as Job didn't get quite the answer he expected, he got an answer, but it wasn't quite the answer he expected. God doesn't give us a direct answer to the problem of suffering. Instead, he shows us a person. We've been looking, haven't we, with Phil in the mornings about the suffering servant of Isaiah. That suffering servant, of course, is primarily Jesus himself. How do we know that? Well, who is the one who can honestly, truly say without any hint of doubt, all this happened to me, though we had not forgotten you or be false to your covenant? There must remain an element of doubt when the psalmist said that, but the Lord Jesus Christ could say that without a shadow of doubt. That would be Jesus of Nazareth who could say that without any doubt at all. But was he exempt from suffering? On the contrary, he was described, wasn't he, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Instead of immediately turning aside the sufferings of God's people, he actually identified with them and went through that same suffering. And yet, in doing that, he was the actual answer to their prayer. Not the answer perhaps they expected. But he was the real answer to their prayer. So I thought I'd allow the Apostle Paul to have the last word on this psalm and on suffering and on the covenant love which God has for his people because he has quite a different slant on this. So perhaps you would like to open your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. So Romans 8, starting at verse 28, and I'm going to read through to verse 39. We know that in all things 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with them, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, and then of course he quotes from Psalm 44, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are the things Paul is talking about here? He says, hardship, trouble, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And yet, what does he say? He said, in these things, we were more than conquerors. The psalmist is seeking a victory. And God does promise a victory, but perhaps not in the way that the psalmist expected it. But the psalmist says that none of these things actually can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. The psalmist, in a sense, didn't get his answer because he was looking forward. But we know that all questions like that are answered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't promise us a life freed from suffering. He doesn't promise us times even of seeming defeat when things seem to go wrong for God's people, sometimes we find that. In fact, he says, in this world you will have trouble. Don't expect anything else. But he says that in these things we are more than conquerors, for nothing can separate us from that covenant love, that love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. In these things we are more than conquerors.